are now listening to the Crimevine Podcast's Halloween episode. Disclaimer. This episode does include gruesome details about true events. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Crimevine Podcast. I am your host, Felicity Brooke, and if you are new here, basically this is a true crime and conspiracy theory podcast. I like to stick with cases that aren't as widely known across the globe. I feel like every case is just as important as the next, and every case deserves the exposure that it needs in order to close the case and actually get some answers for the victims and their families. Today's case, I know I did post a disclaimer in the beginning of this podcast episode, but I'm just going to do another one. There is a lot of detail in adult language and stuff like that in this case. If you have sensitive ears, I wouldn't suggest you listen to it. Or if you're around somebody that has sensitive ears, I wouldn't suggest you listen to it around them. I had to walk away several times while I was researching this case because I felt like all I was doing was writing down victims and how they died. And I feel like you guys might feel like that's all you're hearing too is once we get into that, like it's just victim after victim after victim. And it's kind of sad, not going to lie. It very is like gut-wrenching. So just putting a warning out there. I'd also like to take this time to ask you guys to please rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. It greatly helps me out and it keeps me being able to produce new content for you guys each week on this podcast. Also, I am on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, Instagram, I'm at the Crime Vine Podcast. And on Twitter, I am at the Crime Vine PO1. Twitter is more of case updates and stuff like that. And Instagram is more like less serious, humorous memes about true crime and making fun of serial killers and stuff like that. So if you're into that, follow me on um, Instagram. I'm mostly active on Instagram, though. I'm starting to get more active on Twitter, but mostly Instagram. So if you guys don't already, grab yourselves a drink because this vine will rope you in. Dean Coral was born on December 24th, 1939 to Mary Emma Robinson and Arnold Edwin Coral in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dean's parents eventually divorced when Dean was at a young age. Mary Coral then sold the family home and relocated to a trailer home in Memphis, Tennessee, where Arnold had been drafted into the U.S. Air Force and was currently residing after the divorce. She did this so that way her sons could remain in contact with their father and have a relationship with him. Dean was a very shy kid and was always concerned for the well-being of others. At the age of seven, he suffered from an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever which was not recognized until doctors found Dean had a heart murmur in 1950. As a result of this diagnosis, Dean was ordered to avoid PE classes. Mary and Arnold attempted to rekindle their relationship and they moved to Pasadena, Texas. But this turned into a second divorce for the couple and Mary gained full custody of the boys. Their divorce was granted on amicable grounds and both boys maintained in regular contact with their father. Mary eventually remarried a traveling clock salesman named Jake West. The family moved to the small town of Vitter where Dean's half-sister Joyce was born in 1955. 
the couple decided to start a candy company called Pecan Prince, operating right outside of their garage. During the early days of this business, Dean would work day and night while still attending school, and his other siblings were in charge of packaging the product and running the machines. Jake would then take the candies with him on his sales route to Houston to try and sell them. After Dean was done with high school, his family decided to pick up and move to the outskirts of Houston because that's where a majority of the product was sold. They decided to open a shop for pecan prints. In 1960, at the request of his mother, Dean moved to Indiana to live with his widowed grandmother. During this period of time, Dean formed a close relationship with a local girl and she actually proposed to him for marriage in 1962, but Dean declined. Dean lived in Indiana for almost two years, but returned to Houston in 1962 to help with his family's candy business, which by this date had moved to Houston Heights. He later moved into an apartment of his own right above the shop. In 1963, Mary then divorced Jake and decided to open her own candy company called Coral's Candy Company where she appointed Dean as vice president and his younger brother Stanley as secretary treasurer. That same year, a teenage male complained to Mary about Dean making sexual advances towards him. The result in this, that teenage male got fired. On August 10, 1964, Dean actually got drafted into the United States Army and was assigned to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training. He was later assigned to Fort Benning, Georgia to train as a radio repairman before his permanent assignment to Fort Hood, Texas. According to official military records, Dean's period of service in the Army was unblemished. Dean, however, reportedly hated military service. He applied for a hardship discharge on the grounds that he was needed in his family's business. The Army granted his request and he was given an honorable discharge on June 11th 1965, after just 10 months of service. Following his discharge, Dean moved to Houston Heights and resumed his place as vice president in the candy company. In 1965, they decided to relocate the candy company to 22nd Street, which was directly across from an elementary school. Dean was known to give away free candy to the children, in particular, the teenage boys. Because of this, the locals gave him the name The Candyman and also The Peed Piper. The company employed a small workforce, and he was seen to have been very flirtatious towards several teenage male employees. Dean was known to have installed a pool table at the rear of the candy factory where employees and local youths would congregate. In 1967, Dean befriended a 12-year-old named David Owen Brooks who was then a sixth grade student and one of the many children to whom he gave free candy. David and Dean grew very close together. David would oftentimes accompany Dean on his long trips to South Texas beaches. Whenever David told Dean he needed cash, Dean gave him money, and then David began to view Dean as a father figure. Upon Dean's urging, a sexual relationship gradually developed between the two. Beginning in 1969, Dean actually paid David in cash or with gifts to allow him to perform fellatio on David. Now David's parents were divorced and his father lived in Houston and his mother lived 85 miles outside of Houston. In 1960, David was just 15. He dropped out of Waltrip High School 
and moved to Beaumont to live with his mother. Whenever he visited his father in Houston, he also visited Dean, who allowed him to stay at his apartment if he wished to. Later the same year, David moved back to Houston. Mary and Joyce moved to Colorado around this time after her failed candy business. She stayed in touch with Dean over the phone, but ultimately, she never saw Dean again. Dean then got a job at the Houston Lighting and Power Company as an electrician. On September 25, 1970, Dean abducted an 18-year-old college freshman named Jeffrey Conan. Jeffrey was hitchhiking with another college student from the University of Texas to his parents' home in Houston. He was dropped off alone at the corner of Westmeyer Road and South Foss Road near the uptown area of Houston. Dean likely offered Jeffrey a lift to his parents' home, which Jeffrey evidently accepted. At the time of Jeffrey's disappearance, Dean lived in an apartment on Yorktown Street near the intersection of Westmeyer Road. David was actually the one that led the police to Jeffrey's body on August 10, 1973. The cause of death for Jeffrey was asphyxiation. David walked in on Dean sexually assaulting two teenage boys that he had strapped to a four-poster bed. He offered David a car in exchange for his silence. David accepted and Dean bought him a green Corvette. Dean later on told David that he murdered the two boys and offered David $200 for every boy that he could lure to Dean's apartment. Unfortunately, David agreed to this proposition. On December 13, 1970, David lured two 14-year-olds from, from Spring Branch. James Glass and Danny Yates were their names. He lured them away from a religious rally held in Houston Heights to Dean's apartment. James Glass was actually an acquaintance of David's. Both boys were tied to opposite sides of Dean's bedpost and raped and strangled and buried in a boat shed he had rented on November 17th. Six weeks later would bring us to January 30th, 1971. Dean and David came across two more teenage boys named Donald and Jerry Waldrop. The Waldrop brothers were driven to a friend's house by their father, but once they discovered their friend was not home, they began to walk home. This is when Dean and David saw them. The boys were invited in Dean's van where he then drove them to another apartment he had rented on Magnum Road. He then raped them, strangled them, and buried them in the boat shed like he had for the last two victims. This is seeming to be his M.O. On March 9, 1971, 15-year-old Randall Harvey was last seen by his family riding his bike towards Oak Forest where he worked at a gas station part-time. Dean took Randall to his apartment on Magnum Road and then killed Randall with a single gunshot to the head. On May 29, 1971, 13-year-old David Hillegeist and 16-year-old Gregory Malley Winkle were abducted and killed together. On August 17, 17-year-old Reuben Watson Haney, whom was also an acquaintance to David, was walking home from a movie theater in Houston when David persuaded him to join a party that was being held at an apartment on San Felipe Street. This new apartment just so happens to belong to none other than Dane Quarrel himself. He had moved a month prior to this attack. Reuben agreed to go to the party and this is where he would be strangled and then later on buried at the boat shed. Dean moved to yet another apartment in September of this year. This time it was Houston Heights. 
David later on confessed to there being two more victims right before the abduction and murder of Reuben. These two victims were held captive for four days until they were murdered. The identity of these two individuals is still unknown. Jumping forward to the winter of 1971, things get a little more wild. David lured Elmer Wayne Henley to Dean's apartment as an intended victim. Only Dean thought that Wayne would make a better accomplice than a victim. So he offered Wayne the same offer he gave to David. $200 for, for every victim he brought to Dean. Dean then made sure Wayne knew that he was now a part of a white slavery ring operating from Dallas. Wayne later on confessed to ignoring Dean's offer at first, but him and his family were in dire financial need in early 1972. So he then accepted Dean's offer. Wayne said the first abduction he participated in occurred during the time Dean resided at 925 Schuler Street, an address Dean moved to in February 1972. David later claimed Wayne's statement to be false, saying he participated immediately prior to the apartment on Schuler Street. If we are going with the theory of believing Wayne, that means that the victim was abducted from the Heights in February or early March 1972. Wayne told the police that him and Dean picked up the youth at the corner of 11th and Studwood. They told him that if he came back to Dean's place, they would all smoke marijuana together. Obviously, that was a lie. Wayne cuffed his own hands behind his back, freed himself with a key hidden in his back pocket, and then duped the young teenage male into donning the handcuffs before observing Dean bind and gag him. Wayne then left the youth alone with Dean, believing he was to be sold in the, into the sexual slavery ring. The identity of this victim isn't, isn't definitively known, although it is possible that this young man was Willard Branch, who was a 17-year-old from Oak Forest, known to both Dean and Wayne, who disappeared on February 9, 1972, and whose emasculated body was found buried in the boat shed. March 24, 1972, Wayne, David, and Dean encountered 18-year-old Frank Aguirre who was a friend of Wayne's. He was leaving a restaurant on Yale Street where he worked when Wayne called Frank over to Dean's van and asked him if he wanted to drink beer and smoke marijuana at Dean's apartment. Frank agreed and actually drove himself in his own vehicle to Dean's. Frank did in fact smoke marijuana with them until he found a pair of handcuffs he found on Dean's side table. Dean then jumped on Frank and handcuffed his hands behind his back. Wayne later on confessed that he didn't know what Dean's true intentions were when he first asked Frank to come over. In a 2010 interview, Wayne said that he tried to persuade Dean and David not to kill Frank when he saw they gagged them. Dean refused, then proceeded to tell Wayne that he had raped, tortured, and killed the previous victim he had assisted in abducting, and that he intended to do the same with Frank. Wayne actually helped Dean and David bury Frank's body at High Island Beach. Wayne didn't seem freaked out about this because he actually started helping abduct and murder these victims. On April 20th, 1972, the three abducted 17-year-old Mark Scott, who was well known to both Wayne and David. He was grabbed by force and fought furiously against attempts by Dean to restrain him even attempting to stab his attackers with a knife. 
However, Mark saw Wayne pointing a pistol towards him, and according to David, Mark just gave up. Mark was tied to the torture board and suffered the same fate as Frank. Rape, torture, strangulation, and a burial at High Island Beach. David later stated that Wayne was especially sadistic in his participation in the murders committed at Schuler Street. On June 26, 1972, they added two more victims to their list, Billy and Johnny. Billy Balk and Johnny DeLome. Excuse me if I pronounced that wrong, I really don't know how you would pronounce Billy's last name. In David's confession, he stated that Dean tied both boys to his bedpost and did his normal routine of rape and torture. Wayne then went to strangle Billy, then shouted, Hey Johnny, and shot Johnny in the forehead, with the bullet exiting through Johnny's ear. Johnny then pleaded with Wayne, Wayne, please stop, before he was strangled. Both boys were buried at High Island Beach. They lured another victim, this time it was 19-year-old, named Billy Rittinger to the house. They tied Billy to the bedpost and tortured and abused him, but in a shocking turn in events, David actually pleaded with Dean to release Billy, in which he did so. Crazy enough, Wayne knocked David unconscious when he was entering the house. Dean then took David and tied him up like he did with all his other victims and began assaulting him. You would think that this would be the last straw for David. Nope. He still went on to help Dean. Dean moved again to an apartment in Westcott Towers. 17-year-old Stephen Sickman was last seen leaving a party held in the Heights shortly before midnight on July 19th. He was bludgeoned with an instrument in the chest, then strangled and buried in the boat shed. About a month later, on August 21st, 19-year-old Roy Button was abducted by these malicious men. He was walking to his job as an assistant in a Houston shoe store when he was suddenly shot twice in the head. They then buried him in the boat shed. October 2nd, 1972. Wayne and David found two more victims. Wally J. Sumino, I think is how you would pronounce it, and Richard Hembry. The two boys were on their way to Richard's home when the two predators lured them into David's Corvette and taken to Dean. Wally is known to have phoned his mother's home and to have shouted the word mama into the receiver before the connection was terminated. There's something about that one that just gets me. The next morning, Wayne accidentally shot Richard in the mouth, then strangled both boys to death, and subsequently buried in a common grave inside Dean's boat shed directly above the bodies of James Glass and Danny Yates. The following month, a 19-year-old youth from the Heights named Richard Kepner disappeared on his way to a phone booth. Richard was strangled and buried at High Island Beach. Altogether, a minimum of 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered between February and November 1972, five of whom were buried at High Island Beach and five inside Dean's boat shed. On January 20th, 1973, Dean moved to an address on Wirt Road in the Spring Beach area district of Houston. Within two weeks of moving into this address, he had killed 17-year-old Joseph Lyles. Joseph was known to both Dean and David. He had lived on Antone Drive, the same street upon which David resided in 1973. On March 7th, Dean vacated his Wirt Road apartment and moved to 2020 Lamar Drive 
an address his father had vacated in Pasadena. Between February 1st and June 4th, 1973, Dean is known to have suffered from a hydraulical. Around this time, Wayne needed to distance himself from Dean, so he moved to Mount Pleasant. In June, Dean's blood lust got even worse. His killings dramatically increased along with the brutality of these crimes. On June 4th, Wayne and Dean abducted 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence. The young man was last seen alive by his father on 31st Street. After three days of abuse and torture, William was strangled before being buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Less than two weeks later, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn was abducted, strangled, and buried at the same lake. On July 6, 1973, Wayne began attending classes at the Coaches Driving School in Bel Air, where he became acquainted with 15-year-old Homer Luis Garcia. The following day, Homer phoned his mother to say he was spending the night with a friend. He was shot and left to bleed to death in Dean's bathtub before he was buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Five days later, on July 12, 17-year-old John Sellers of Orange County was bound shot to death and buried at High Island Beach. In July 1973, David married his pregnant fiance, leaving Wayne to be Dean's sole companion. During July 19th through the 25th, Wayne claims that there were only three victims in which David was not a part of. One of these victims was 15-year-old Michael Bullock, brother of previous victim Billy was last seen by his family on July 19th on his way to get a haircut. He was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. The other two victims, Charles Cobble and Marty Ray Jones, were abducted together on the afternoon of July 25th. Wayne himself later buried both bodies in the boat shed. On August 13th, 1973 would be the last time Dean killed an innocent child. 13-year-old boy from South Houston named James Stanton Dreamala was abducted by Dean and David while riding his bike in Pasadena and driven to Lamar Drive upon the pretense of collecting empty glass bottles to resell. They used their first MO of tying the victim to the bedpost, raping, and then strangling him with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. On August 7th, Wayne invited a 19-year-old named Timothy Cordell Kearley to attend a party at Dean's Pasadena residence. Dean intended for this to be his next victim. But things didn't go as planned. Wayne and Timothy went back to Dean's house where they sniffed paint fumes and drank alcohol until midnight before leaving the house to purchase sandwiches. This is when Wayne got a call from a friend of his. 15-year-old Rhonda Williams was being beaten and abused by her father so she decided she needed to get away for a little while until her father sobered up. Wayne invited Rhonda to go back to Dean's with them, and she agreed. At about 3 a.m. on the 8th, they arrived back at Dean's place. When Dean saw Rhonda with, him, with them, he was pissed. He claims that Wayne had ruined everything because he brought back a girl to his place. Once Wayne explained to Dean the situation that Rhonda was in, Dean seemed to have calmed down a bit. The three teenagers began drinking and smoking marijuana, and then they all eventually passed out. Wayne woke up to Dean handcuffing his hands. His mouth had been taped shut and his ankles had been bound together. Timothy and Rhonda were lying next to Wayne, securely bound with nylon rope, gagged with adhesive tape, and lying face down on the floor. 
and Timothy was stripped naked. Once Dean realized that Wayne had woken up, he told him, man, you blew it bringing that girl before shouting, I'm going to kill you all, but first I'm going to have my fun. He then kicked Rhonda in the chest, then dragging Wayne into the kitchen and placing a 22 caliber pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. Wayne then told Dean that if he let them go, he would help them torture, help him torture and kill Timothy and Rhonda. And of course, Dean agreed. So Wayne took the two and tied them to the bed. Timothy was placed on his stomach and Rhonda on her back. Dean gave Wayne a hunting knife and told him to cut off Rhonda's clothes. While he was doing that, Dean would rape Timothy and then Wayne would rape Rhonda. Both these victims had woken up at this point. They both started to struggle and Wayne had removed Rhonda's gag and she asked him, is this for real? To which he answered, yes. Williams then asked Wayne, are you going to do anything about it? Wayne asked Dean if he should take Rhonda into another room. Dean ignored him, so Wayne grabbed the pistol and said, you've gone far enough, Dean. Dean got off Timothy at this point and Wayne added, I can't get, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. Dean then instructed Wayne to kill him. He kept taunting Wayne saying, you won't do it. Finally, Wayne fired, hitting him in the forehead. The bullet failed to fully penetrate to Dean's skull. Dean tried to attack Wayne, but then Wayne fired two more rounds, hitting Dean in the shoulder. Dean then ran out of the room, hitting the wall of the hallway. Wayne fired three additional bullets into his lower back and shoulder as Dean slid down the wall in the hallway outside the room where the two other teenagers were bound. Dean died where he fell, his naked body lying face down toward the wall. Wayne then released the two and they all pondered what they should do next. Timothy suggested calling the police and that is what they did. At 8.24 a.m., Wayne called the police saying, y'all better come right now, I just killed a man. They all waited on the porch for the police to arrive. Wayne then told Timothy that if they weren't his friends, he could have gotten $200 for them. The officers then arrested Wayne and read him his Miranda rights, and he said, I don't care who knows about it, I have to get it off my chest. Then Wayne told the police everything about the last three years. Every murder, where they hid the bodies, what they did to these victims, how they abducted them, how they found them, and how he would get paid $200 for every victim. The police were a bit skeptical of this since the whole reason why Wayne was arrested was for self-defense against Dean. However, upon his recalling the names of three boys, Cabell, Hillegeist, and Jones, whom he stated he and David Brooks had procured for Dean, the police accepted that there was something to his claims. As all three teenagers were listed as missing at Houston Police Headquarters. The floor of the room where the three teenagers had been tied was covered in thick plastic sheeting. It's also found a plywood torture board measuring 8 by 3 feet, with handcuffs attached to nylon rope at two corners, and nylon ropes on the other two. They also found a large hunting knife, clear rolls of plastic, a rigged radio, an electric motor with loose wires attached to it, eight pairs of handcuffs, a ton of dildos, thin glass, and a bunch of rope. Inside his van, police found a coil of rope, a swatch of beige rug covered in soil stains, and a wooden crate with air holes drilled in the side. The pegboard walls inside the rear of the van were rigged with several rings and hooks. 
They also found another wooden crate with air holes found in Dean's backyard, and inside of it had several strands of human hair. Wayne then led the police to the boat shed where most of the victims were buried. Inside, police found a half-stripped car, which turned out to have been stolen from a used car lot in March, a child's bike, a large iron drum, water containers, two sacks of lime, and a large plastic bag full of teenage boys' clothing. As the police uncovered the bodies, they noticed they were all wrapped in thick plastic. The victims that were strangled still had the ligatures around their necks, while others had a clear bullet wound indicating the cause of death. The police had no idea what they were about to witness. It was clear there was sexual torture as pubic hairs were plucked out, genitals were chewed on, objects had been inserted to their rectums, and glass rods had been inserted into them and smashed. The cloth rags were still in the victim's mouth with duct tape over it. The third victim they uncovered, his teeth were showing, and it was positioned in a way that leads authorities to believe that he was screaming at the time of his death. On August 8, 1973 is when they found all those, all those dead bodies in the boat shed. Later that evening, David made his way to the police station, denying his involvement with the murders, but admitting to the fact that he knew about Dean raping and killing two victims in 1970. On the morning of August 9th, Wayne wrote a full written confession detailing his and David's involvement in these heinous crimes, confessing to have killed nine victims and assisting Dean in strangulation on others. Wayne then took the police to Lake Sam Rayburn, where they had buried four victims. Two additional bodies were found in shallow lime-soaked graves located close to a dirt road. Inside the lakeside log cabin owned by Dean's family, police found a second plywood torture board, rolls of plastic sheeting, shovels, and a sack of lime. On August 9th, police found nine more bodies in the boat shed with progressed decomposition. Later that evening, on the 9th, David gave a full confession, but did deny to having direct participation in the murders. David said, once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over, but the shouting and the crying. He agreed to accompany police to High Island Beach to assist in the search for the bodies of the victims. On August 10th, Wayne went back to the lake with authorities and found two more bodies. That afternoon, both Wayne and David accompanied police to High Island Beach leading police to the shallow graves of two victims. On August 13th, both Wayne and David again accompanied the police to High Island Beach where they found four more bodies, making a total of 27 known victims. This would be America's worst killing spree in history at this time. As you can imagine, the families of the victims were not happy with the police in this. They all agreed that the police should have seen a pattern with the abductions. Everett Waldrop, the father of Donald and Jerry Waldrop, has said that right after his children disappeared in 71, that there was a witness who saw Dean burying that what looked like bodies in the boat shed. They brought this to the police and the police did a search but supposedly found nothing and passed it off as a hoax. He even said on one occurrence, he went to the chief of police and the chief said to him, why are you down here? You know the boys are runaways. By April of 1974, 21 bodies of Dean's victims were found. Two more teenagers were identified in 1983 and 1985, one of whom was Richard Kepner, also lived in Houston Heights. The other young man was Willard Branch, 
lived in Oak Forest District of Houston. On August 13th, a grand jury was present to hear evidence against Wayne and David. The first witnesses to testify was Rhonda and Timothy, testifying on the events of August 7th and 8th leading to the death of Dean. Another witness who testified to his experience at the hands of Dean Coral was Billy Riddinger. On August 14th, the grand jury initially indicted Wayne on three murder charges and David on one count. Bail for each was set at $100,000. The DA motioned for Wayne to take a psychiatric evaluation to determine if he was fit to stand trial, but his lawyer declined that request as it would violate his constitutional rights. By the time the grand jury had reviewed all the evidence, Wayne was already indicted for six murders and David with four. However, Wayne was not charged with Dean's death since they ruled it as self-defense. The two men were tried for these heinous crimes separately. Wayne went to trial on July 1st, 1974 in San Antonio, Texas. On July 15th of 74, Wayne was found guilty of the six murder charges. And on July 16th, Judge Preston Dial ordered that Wayne serve each 99-year sentence consecutively totaling 594 years, and he was transferred to the Huntsville unit to formally begin his sentence. Wayne appealed against his sentence and conviction, contending the jury in his initial trial had not been sequestered, that his attorney's objections to news media being present in the courtroom had been overruled and citing that his defense's team attempts to present evidence contending that the initial trial should not have been held in San Antonio had also been overruled by the judge. Wayne's appeal was upheld, and he was awarded a retrial in December of 78. His retrial began on June 18th of 79 in Corpus Christi. On June 27th, Wayne was again convicted of six murders and sentenced to six concurrent 99-year terms. David was brought to trial on February 27th of 1975, and he was only brought to trial for one of these murders. His trial lasted a week, and he was found guilty and received a sentence in, of life in prison. David also appealed against his sentence, contending that the signed confessions used against him were taken without his being informed of his legal rights. But his appeal was dismissed in May of 79. Both Wayne and David are serving life sentences, and Wayne is incarcerated at the Mark W. Michael Unit in Anderson County, Texas, and David is incarcerated at the Terrell Unit near Rocheron, Texas. All right, you guys, what do you think about that case? I think it is absolutely wild. I even saying the names again of the victims. I I don't know if you guys could hear it in my voice, but I was having a hard time and I honestly contemplated just hitting stop recording. I have recorded this episode or tried recording this episode probably about 10 different times and that is no ex- over exaggeration there. I'm being completely honest. I have tried to record this episode for the past week and it is now Thursday the Thursday before the 28th, which is the day that this episode is going to air. And I still have so much to do with audio and everything to get it up. But I normally have my episodes done a week in advance. Um, So I'm already like by the time I upload that episode, I'm already would have recorded 
the next case episode that I would be talking about. So it just goes to show how behind I am on this case. It's honestly, oh, this one really got to me. And I think it's because of all the victims that there was so many victims and I felt like all I was doing was reading victims' names and how old they were and how they died. And I think that is just awful. Um, It's just, it amazes me what some humans do. Honestly, terrifying. Not going to lie. I don't know what goes through a person's head to murder somebody. But to this extent, this is pretty crazy. And he just was relentless and he didn't stop at anything. And it makes me a little angry that he, Dean, died and like he was... Okay, it doesn't make me angry that he was murdered. It makes me angry that he was died and never faced any of the repercussions of his actions. He never faced punishment. He never faced a trial. He never got arrested. He got away scot-free with this. Yeah, he may have died, but to me, I think that's the easy way out. Not going to lie. Um, in prison, prison in... So if you're not from America, I don't know how it is in your countries, but I do know that in America, if you rape children, if you were a child predator of any kind, the inmates will take care of you in American prison. That is one thing that does not go unnoticed. That is the one thing that other inmates, people that have also done horrible things to land themselves in prison, will not tolerate is child being a child predator of any kind. So they oftentimes get air quotes around it, taken care of in prison by the other inmates. And unfortunately, I know it sounds bad saying like, you know, I never wish anything horrible on an, uh, any other human being. But in this case, like he messed with children. He messed with adolescent children who had their entire lives ahead of them. He completely, it's not even like he just raped and killed them. He tortured them. He did horrible things like the way and the condition that they found their bodies and with things like shoved up them is how they were buried. I mean, come on. He still left the ligatures around their neck too, which was, I guess, a way of not getting caught because um, what he used to kill them, he buried them with, but besides the ones that were shot. But oh my goodness, I'm telling you, I have like goosebumps right now and I have like anxiety. <laughs> I don't even want to like finish talking about it, but I got through this episode. I got through this one. Um, this one, it really did. You guys know how I am. Um, I can't handle anything bad happening to children. I've said it in past episodes. I'm like, oh my gosh, this one's about kids. I know. But this one really is about kids. There's a lot of kids in this one. Um, and it's just horrible. So I want to know what your guys' thoughts on this case were. Have you guys ever heard about Dean Coral? There is another case going around called The Candyman, but Dean Coral is the original Candyman. The other one murdered his son for life insurance. I don't remember the guy's name, but I know that one is going around and it is being mistaken for The Candyman, but Dean is the original Candyman, in case any of you guys were wondering. Um, so I want to know what you guys think about this case. Have you guys heard this case before? Are you familiar with it? Um, I want to know what your thoughts are on it and what you think about it. And if you guys have any case requests, please either tweet at me on Twitter or send me a DM or even comment on one of my uh, pictures on Instagram. That is greatly encouraged. I like to put out there what you guys also want to hear. And if you guys have other like not as widely known cases that maybe I have never even heard of, please send them to me because I'd love to check them out. Again, I'm going to ask you guys to please rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to and follow me on Twitter and Instagram, Twitter, the Crime Vine PO1, Instagram at the Crime Vine Podcast. And I guess I'll talk to you guys in my next podcast episode. 
thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you guys next week.